Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Previously on Mentally Yours. I really didn't think that it could happen. And I didn't think that she thought it could happen either because I think she she was going through something and she didn't think I would understand and she wanted to go away and get strong. And then when she reached out to me, she was feeling strong. But I had, it had changed. I think being the person who has been left in a romantic relationship that's fine but it or it happens but in a friendship it's you know you, you don't under i i didn't understand and i didn't know that she would ever reach out to me again so i didn't think that she would and so in her i, I realized that in the back of her mind she must have always thought when i'm better i'll reach out and that's what she did but i i didn't have that Welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly podcast about all things mental health. I'm Ellen. And I'm Yvette. And this week we'll be talking to the fantastic Matthew Todd. Um, he's got a book out called Straight Jacket, Overcoming Society's Legacy of Gay Shame. We'll be chatting to him about that, um, all things to do with homophobic bullying, um, trauma and a huge range of issues to do with LGBTQ communities. Well, I've been working in the, the gay sector, the gay media, whatever you want to call it, for, you know, 23, 4, 5 years. I, I started at Stonewall and then I went to Attitude and worked my way up there. 
and uh, I realized I had lots of problems and I realized all my closest friends had lots of problems and I realized lots of the people I worked with had lots of problems and then basically many many of the gay people that I knew had lots of problems not to say that straight people I, I know don't have problems because loads of them that I know do and actually I think probably growing up I think you bond with people that are similar to you and so lots of the straight friends I had did have similar issues but they did something seemed wrong in with my experience of other gay people from like a young gay man that I met when I was very young a friend of mine who said to me oh I'm useless I'm worthless I'm definitely going to catch HIV yeah it's just definitely going to happen just get it out of the way to people with eating disorders I think some well clearly a lot of my behavior was uh, was out of control I was drinking too much I was sleeping with everybody I could get my hands on um and my life was just a bit out of control and it, it it's strange because a lot of the things I was doing weren't that terrible. It, it sounds worse when you talk about the now, but it was over a long period of time. But there was a lot of time when I would be, you know, things were getting so bad that I was asking for help, going to the GP, asking to see a counsellor. Going, I saw a counsellor when I was at university when I had a bereavement, and I quickly moved on to talking about issues around it, surrounding my sexuality, being gay. And she was lovely, but she couldn't help. She said, I don't, I have no idea. And uh, by the end of the eight sessions, she thanked me for educating her about it, which was really frustrating. But also because it hasn't been talked about within gay culture, within LGBT culture, you know, all of this stuff is, um, you know, a bit of a taboo. And I wrote about it in Attitude in 2010 when I was editor and we got everyone was very nervous about it in the office you know, talking about, you know, the idea that gay people have higher levels of depression, and addiction and low self-esteem and suicide and all the rest of it. That's a sensitive thing to talk about because the narrative of gay culture has always been we're proud and it's amazing. And, you know, it's a wonderful thing to be gay and straight people must be so sad that they don't have the exciting lives that we have. So to say that was kind of going against the grain of that. So we were all very nervous about it, but we got the biggest post bag we'd ever had before or since. And so I really, you know, I affirmed to me that there was something to be spoken about. And then I wrote the book. Mm. So in the book, um, there's a chapter where you write about your own sort of experiences, your background growing up. You mentioned that briefly there. Um, do you mind sort of summarizing that sort of and how you've related that in terms of the whole narrative of the book? I grew, I was born in 1973 in South London and it's very hard for younger people to understand I think for people of my age as well to remember how bad it was that you know gayness was not talked about whatsoever it was not a question of oh it was a bit hushed or as you know people spoke about it in a quiet kind of subdued way it just was not talked about other than if you were bullied you know you were called a puff or a queer or whatever it may be at school uh, i started to realize that i had you know feelings for other boys sexual feelings or romantic actually it was more romantic really it was you know the way you know boys and girls are with each other straight kids you know just wanting to hang around with the boys having crushes on them and then when i was 10 i realized that oh that's what i am i am gay a homosexual and all i had seen was what the press was saying about gay people which was horrendous and this would have been 1980 1981 1982 just as the time when aids first started being reported uh, my father was a bus driver and used to bring home copies of the tabloid newspapers and they just instead of i mean I, i'm not i laugh because it's kind of painful to remember it but you know when hiv and aids came along you'd think this new disease that was predominantly affecting gay men in the west you'd think that there would have been a certain amount of compassion. I understand that people were scared and no one really understood it at first, didn't even know what it was at first or how you caught it, how, how it was um, spread. But the, the media was 
pretty hateful and painted gay men in particular as pedophiles, as a threat to decent people, as a threat to the family, portrayed gay people as being not part of families. And, you know, there were, there's a, there's a, a cartoon that was printed in the sun where they, they, pretty much kind of they showed him a man hanging his gay son from 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 a lamppost i mean it's incredible to even say it out loud to to think that that could have been published but it was i've got it i've got it at home it's important to document those things as well that's what i really thought was very important about that chapter in your book that you have you've documented a lot of those headlines and the things that said because i think like you say now people sort of look back and think well all right, so people weren't as enlightened, but you know, was it really that bad? You've mm. you've got the headlines in there, and it is pretty shocking. And I think another one that one thing that stood out for me was someone that had written to a problem page, and they were sort of upset because they'd found out their son was gay, and was they were actually saying, you know, I wish I'd prefer them to be dead. He was a soldier with a mother had written to this problem page saying, um, my son was in the RAF, he'd fought in the Falklands, you know considered to be in our culture you know a war hero you know a, a returning soldier and she said I, I wish he'd been killed in the Falklands rather than come back and then been a gay man and that I think is the basis it's not the only thing because there's homophobia now and people experience you know different forms of prejudice and lots of different people do as well not just homophobia but I think that the, that period of the 80s was particularly bad to be growing up in, um, just being told over and over again that you will not be able to find a relationship. People that like you don't want a relationship, you just have sex, that's all you do. Um, you are evil, you know, all the religions condemn you, you're disgusting, you're filthy, you spread diseases, you may as well be dead. And I was a kid, you know, I was 12, 13, 14, absorbing all of that, as many of my generation were. And there's been this narrative from from gay culture, which is you come out and everything's fine. And I remember when Michael Barrymore came out, I think Peter, I think it was Peter Tatchell. I don't want to do him a disservice. It might have been somebody else. But, and, I, and I love Peter Tatchell and I have full massive respect for him. He's a friend of mine. But I think Peter Tatchell wrote a letter saying, hooray, you've come out. You will now find that, you know, that, that burden is off of you, that, you know, all of your other problems will probably disappear. And clearly Michael Barrymore's problems actually got worse and worse and worse. So I, I think, you know, gr growing up, absorbing all these negative messages you don't just, they don't just like disappear the minute you come out actually for a lot of us and not everybody. There are many, many, many happy gay people. And I know so many of them, people in relationships, people are single, people having a great time. But for lots of us, we absorb these messages and they stick with us. And you have to do a certain amount of work. I think a lots of us do anyway, to overcome them. And I think we're seeing now that stuff really manifesting, you know, there's a massive drugs problem with gay and bisexual men in London specifically in other big cities, but all over the country and all over the world, actually, certainly the Western world, but it's, it's, I think it's particularly bad here. Can you talk us through how that kind of trauma manifests in later life and how you've seen it come up? Yeah, I mean, when I was writing the book, there was someone who, uh, a, a guy called Rob Goddard, who he, um, his brother is called Andy Goddard. He's still the Attitudes advertising manager now. Andy is straight and he got married to his uh, wife and they went on, on honeymoon for a year. And his brother, who's gay, Rob, came to work and do kind of fill in his position for, for a year. And I knew him a little bit. This was years ago. Um, and as I was writing the book, he killed himself. And he ha had a kind of checklist of really common uh, 
ways that I think childhood trauma manifests in gay people, but not just gay people, because this is a problem for any anybody that's grown up not feeling loved enough or been abused or gone through trauma when they were growing up in, in different ways. But um, he was finding himself in lots of self-destructive relationships where people, you know, there was domestic violence and he stayed with them. Um, he was getting drunk. I think he, he carried like beer with him in his rucksack the whole time. So he, in case he was ever nervous or anxious, he had these kind of, this kind of alcohol there to just dull his feelings. He was taking drugs. He got gay bashed. I think a few times that happened. He was on a night bus once and I think he had his head resting on his boyfriend's shoulder and on the night bus going home and some yobs. Uh, beat them up um at another time guys set dogs on him he became hiv positive he developed a severe drug problem and he got into the whole chemsex scene which is what is happening now for a lot of people i mean the vast majority of gay men don't take drugs i think i think i quote the british crime survey i think it's from 2014 which shows that 33 percent of uh, men who have sex with men which is the kind of more, you know the more PC way of saying gay or bisexual men had used illicit drugs in the last six months at the point of the survey compared to, I think it's, I think it's 11% of straight men and at 33% we were the highest group out of all the people uh, surveyed in that, in that survey. That still means that nearly 70% of gay men aren't using drugs. So it's certainly not everybody. And it's really important to not stigmatize people and say that all gay people use drugs because of course that's not true, but it is a real, a really big problem that, and often on apps like Grindr, where people can just go onto those apps and within two minutes can see people uh, making it clear that they are using drugs like crystal meth or G or methadrone and people use them for days on end sometimes, have sex with multiple partners and I'm not being prissy or judgmental about it at all. It's just that people get themselves into a lot of trouble. You know, condoms go out the window. There's lots of sexual assaults. Uh, you know, there's, there's quite a bleak picture out there from in these kind of subcultures of, of gay men and, and again it's really important to say this is not a mainstream thing it's kind of a, a subculture but there's a lot of bad stuff happening out there a lot of people reporting i don't know uh, there was a, a guy i heard of who, who was um, stabbing himself because he was having a psychosis from crystal meth we believe there were kind of insects inside of him a guy I interviewed for the book was um having sex with a couple in their house somewhere in South London and he believed they were whispering to each other, we're going to kill him, we're going to kill him, we're going to, we're going to kill him. And he rushed out of the house without shoes and socks, jumped onto a bus, jumped off the bus, running down the street with no shoes on and passed um, a homeless guy who was also shouting, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you. And it turned out it was a psychosis. It was all because of the, the crystal meth. So there is a, there is a, there is a big problem with drugs and i don't i mean i i the book came out uh two years ago the paperback this year um so i've not been focused on it as much as i was when i was researching it but i hear that it's still bad it's still lots of problems it's kind of it's a lot of sexualized violence and stuff going on so there is a problem and, and i think we can't i think there's an instinct from lots of gay people myself included to say oh we can't talk about this because it doesn't look very good and it doesn't fit in with the kind of pr of being gay but it's really important we talk about it. I mean, there's lots of people dying, lots of people overdosing, and they don't from from uh, G, which is a drug which you ingest, which kind of changes when you when you ingest it and gives you this kind of like drunk, sexualized high, and makes people feel very sexual, and they lose inhibitions. 
and that doesn't show up often and, and it is after someone's died and people don't always look for it when they do toxicology reports and things so there's lots of people that die from these g overdoses that aren't being reported so we we have this we don't really understand how many people it's affecting but you know some of these hospitals see you know scores and scores of of people coming in overdosing on these drugs and when it first started happening they didn't even know what they were so people were coming in collapsed and and no one knew the police didn't understand the hospitals didn't understand and you know, I spoke to a, to a nurse at a London hospital, and, the, and just the horrific stories of people disconnecting themselves from machines when they've been brought in half an hour ago with a life threatening overdose, and then going back to the club as soon as they've been brought round again, and other people, you know, throwing themselves off of roofs and underpasses and things like that. It's there's a there is a severe problem, and it's it's really upsetting to to be reminded of it actually, and to talk about it still. I think when we talk about drugs. Um, generally, it's it's easier to have that kind of instance of reaction to think, oh, that's really terrible. You know, somebody's sort of taking drugs or someone's got some sort of an alternative lifestyle, you sort of have that reaction rather than to sort of maybe take a moment and think about what's happened before that, you know, why they've decided to sort of, or, you know, how drugs have come into their life in the first place and maybe how they've then sort of become addicted in terms of your book, I think it's really fascinating because the key sort of theme is shame, isn't it? Mm. Um, if I can quote a bit, if that's all right. So, yeah, sure. Self-shaming can happen to any child, regardless of sexual orientation, who is overwhelmed with distress or negative messages about himself or herself. So the key thing throughout the book is shame. And it's really interesting the way you're sort of, you're sort of saying this childhood trauma of shame that children experience then leads to these experiences later in life because effectively children haven't, like you say, felt loved enough or maybe haven't learned the coping mechanisms um, to deal with things. So they then sort of possibly go to drugs or alcohol. Again, I'm not, also I'm not sort of saying I think that all gay people sort of take drugs or do alcohol or anything like that because, you know, like you Mm. say, the majority don't. Mm. But we need to address the fact that, like you say, 33% um, have, have tried that and sort of, are doing this sort of stuff. Yeah, I think the big problem that I think the big, the big problem that gay men have at the moment is that I think it's natural for lots of people to take drugs, especially when they're younger, when they're students, when they're in their 20s. I'm not condoning it, saying it's a good thing or bad thing. It just is what it is. And, you know, I took speed when I was in my 20s and ecstasy and, you know, not maybe the greatest idea to take any of those drugs, but I did them and I had some great times and, you know, went around hugging everybody for the night and then spent the Sunday kind of, you know, just listening to Madonna feeling really depressed. (laughs) Um, But I think those there are young people now with the drugs that are available now, which are common in gay culture, like crystal meth and G, which is so dangerous and so it's so easy to overdose on them you have to measure it out and like in milliliters from a little pipette and put it into like you know drink like coke or something coca-cola um that you can so easily overdose and and die that they're just so much more dangerous than the drugs that were around when when i was around and crystal meth is so addictive and so powerful and can people can become hooked to it very very easily and very quickly so i think that's the really scary thing and you know and i've had lots of lots of people since the book came out people will message me and say i've got a friend he's 24 and he's got some amazing job might be a lawyer or a doctor even or, or a teacher or you know working in, in some fabulous company somewhere with an amazing job who's become addicted to these kind of party drugs become hiv positive become hepatitis c positive tried to kill himself i mean that's a very common thing in in, in people that i know and it's not 
I'm not stigmatizing anybody who uses drugs or, or alcohol excessively, but we do have this kind of idea, you know, that maybe in the 80s, you know, heroin users, often people who've had childhood abuse, often straight people were using heroin, injecting heroin just to be go kind of into this, you know, like coma. So you're just stuck in your flat for days on end. So we have this kind of narrative in our heads about what, what, what drug use is like, like bad, you know, really negative, harmful drug use. Whereas there are now there are kind of gay guys in their 40s or their 50s who've not really used drugs before who suddenly become introduced to them from apps and from sexual partners who are then finding their lives devastated at the age of 45 when most people have long you know decided what drugs they may have experimented with used them or not used them whatever and moved on whereas it's still damaging lots of us you know even older men which is which is quite unusual and I think it's something that needs to be talked about more. Yeah. What should we be doing? So, for example, if I had a gay friend or a gay relative and they are in that situation where they're taking party drugs I want and I want to sort of support them somehow, you know, not as in support their drug use, but sort of support them as a person to sort of come off them and maybe try an alternative lifestyle. Well, when I said alternative, I suppose I mean mm. more boring, like my sort of... Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm all for boring. <laughs> I think boring is very underrated, actually, in our culture, kind of especially youth culture, really celebrates, you know, craziness, doesn't it? And kind of compulsive drinking and, you know, partying the whole time as if you're not out 24-7, you're really boring. And actually, that's not the reality, really. I mean, I, you know, I was out a lot in my 20s and now I'm in my mid-40s. I, I don't go out as much. Um, but just to answer your question, I mean, in London, there there's some decent services like Antidote, which is a London friend, which people can Google, which is the LGBT-specific drugs and alcohol service. They're really, really good. There's 56 Dean Street, which is a sexual health clinic, and they have a great guy there called David Stewart, who's the um, drugs lead there, who helps people with psychosexual counselling and referring people and, and helping people. Um, in Manchester, there's the LGBT Foundation, I think it's called. Um, and there are places all over the country, like LGBT services. I think calling gay switchboard is a really good thing to do, which you can Google and get the number. You can call them. They're very non-judgmental. They deal with these kind of issues all the time. And wherever you are in the country, they can give you advice about where to go. But it is a difficult, I can't lie, it's a difficult situation because if, I think a lot of gay people are scared about going to mainstream services because they feel they'll be judged you know, for being gay. And often when they go to those services, those services don't really know about, you know, crystal meth use and, and G and methadrone and things like that. Um, it's the same across the board with, with gay stuff. Like when I was researching the book, I think I mentioned it in the book that I was I've always been very frustrated that people don't talk about the bullying of LGBT kids as if it just doesn't happen, as if gay people suddenly just become gay at 25 and they're just fully formed adults when actually most of us suffer a lot growing up and, and, and are invisible in the mainstream discussion. And I remember speaking to some some helpline and they said, um, oh, uh, I think it was a charity called Beat Bullying. I don't want to be nasty about them. If, I don't want to be nasty about them all. I don't want to say things about them that aren't true. I think it was Beat Bullying. They said, call them. We've given a million. I think Nick Clegg and the, the government, the coalition, had given a million pounds to them. And that was how he said he was addressing uh, homophobic bullying. And I called them and they didn't have any experience of homophobic bullying. They didn't have any thoughts about it. And they said, call Stonewall. And Stonewall is a lobbying group. It's not a charity. It's not a, a helpline or a place where individual people go for support. So it's very difficult. And if young people are, are struggling, you know, it, it's quite hard, you know, to, to, to get support and help. And, and for people with with drug and alcohol problems. But Antidote and, and, and uh, uh, 56 Dean, Dean Street are a great place to start, I think. And even if you're not in, in London, you can call Antidote and have a chat with them and they will talk to you and give you some advice. They're, they're really, really great. 
but in a bigger way i think i think gay culture needs to start addressing these issues and i think needs to start making the language of mental health and recovery and of addiction and coming out of addiction as fundamentally part of gay culture as madonna and rupaul and beyonce and lady gaga and all the kind of frivolous fun side of gay culture i think all of this stuff about people being in recovery needs to be center in our discussion and that's our responsibility we've got to do that and it's not really happening as of yet even though i think the book is doing well and it's doing well from word of mouth but it hasn't got to the critical mass where people are really addressing this stuff yet i think people are reluctant to talk about the issues and emotional side of things that are specific to homophobia and growing up in that culture. Can you talk us a little bit about um, homophobic bullying and how that is impacting people? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad to say that even as I was writing the book and since as well, you know, it has become more of an issue and there are more schools and teachers and unions and, and, and the government talking about it, at least acknowledging for the first time that there is a problem. When I was at Attitude, we took uh, Ed Miliband down to a school in Hove, uh, which had won an award. I think it was Blatchington Mill School. I think it's called in Hove. Had a very nice afternoon. Um, and it was really moving to see all these kind of kids, you know, gay kids standing up for themselves, you know, kids who were 15 years old who were identifying as LGBT and talking about what they felt. You know, they were always criticizing the Pope, I remember, which was very interesting of the Pope's stance on same-sex marriage. He was very passionate about it, which was very moving because from my generation, we'd all be a bit sheepish and scared to stand up and say that. But there was also straight kids as well. I think... There's this, been this taboo, certainly when I was growing up, the idea that if you mentioned gayness to young people, and I'm talking about 13, 14, 15 years old, suddenly that everyone would become gay. And I, I think you're either gay or you're straight or you're bi or whatever it may be, you know, whatever part of the spectrum you sit on. I think that to me, I believe that that's set at birth. It certainly was for me. Nothing could have, otherwise I would be straight. I had so many people telling me to be straight. Um, so that was very moving. I think things are things are changing, but I think it's really difficult if you are a gay kid because... I think a very common experience is you'll be bullied for it before you even realize it yourself. And then there's a stage where a lot of people are trying to hide it because they're scared and they, you know, they, they this is in fear of their lives, really thinking they're going to be bullied or outed or what will it mean? And I think the difference between some other bullying is that it's very vocally addressed by teachers, not, not all teachers, but there's a general understanding that bullying's bad and we must stop it and we can talk about it. If you're being bullied, come and tell a teacher or tell your parents and we will deal with it. Whereas if you're lesbian or gay or bisexual, specifically or trans, then to, to tell a teacher or to tell your parents is to out yourself. You might not be, be comfortable with that yourself or you might be really frightened about the reaction from parents. And often, you know, teachers still say homophobic things. Parents, you know, parents still kick their kids out of home for being gay. You know, there there is still so it's, it's it just feels very very dangerous, and I and I understand why some of these kids feel very very isolated. Also, sometimes teachers can say the wrong thing, or mm. they'll just say, "I don't I don't know enough about that." They feel unequipped to talk about it. Yeah, I find that a lot. Even talking about um, sex education, a lot of teachers will be like, "Oh well, I don't want to talk about LGBT issues because that's not." something i'm familiar with mm. and so it just stays silent we had section 28 didn't we which mrs thatcher brought in when i was 15 that was terrible which basically outlawed 30 years actually ago this year which outlawed um essentially teachers being able to talk about you know gay issues in school and effectively stop them from being able to support kids that might be gay or questioning their sexuality in some way and i i was one of them i asked i wanted to speak to a teacher about it I was terrified. I didn't know whether I'd be getting him into trouble. I don't know if it felt like he was able to say anything to me. Um, 
so I think um, there's a legacy of, of Section 28 that I think a lot of teachers are still confused about what can be said and what can't be said. And it is the whole situation with sex education is pretty medieval in this country. This idea that, that parents are able to opt out, I think that's outrageous. You know, especially now. I mean, when I was a kid, we used to watch this program, this, this they used to the educational program that they'd wheel the TV into the class and we'd watch it. And I remember there was one episode about sex education and the girls, when I was 10 years old in my, my primary school, knew that this next episode was about sex education. I, I had no, I didn't even know what sex was at the age of 10. And they made a point, the teacher wasn't in the, 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 the class and they made a point of wheeling the TV in and watching it and showing this, this program to us, the, the, my fellow pu female pupils. So we watched this very clinical, you know, mechanical program, very age appropriate program about um the basics of, of, of sex and all, all the kids were screaming and hysterical because laughing because there was no teacher next door teacher came in there was a big drama but the point being that now we have the internet we have phones i dread to think what kids are seeing on phones now i mean you can see you know the most extreme sexual fetishes and i'm i, I find that really frightening and upsetting and so for goodness sake it's really important that, that we step in as adults and appropriately talk about relationships and consent and then at an appropriate age what sex is and it's not about teaching kids or encouraging them how to have sex i think it's more about encouraging them in some ways to not to have sex you know to to, to be aware that you can wait and maybe it's better to wait and maybe you know about you know when it's appropriate if you love somebody if you have feelings for somebody i'm not being prissy about it but it and, and LGBT kids are there. You know, there's a narrative at the moment about trans kids, and I heard it on the radio the other day. Oh, they can't possibly know. They do know. I've met kids, some of these parents with these kids, you know, kids who start, you know, hacking. There was one a friend of a friend of mine who had asked me for some advice and point her in the right direction. She has uh, a child who was hacking at his genitals. Um, you know, he, he, he clearly felt that he was not in the right body and it wasn't just a whim and he really needed some support and counselling and not people who have no experience of it whatsoever saying, that's ridiculous, you're brainwashing them. The mother was not encouraging it. She was, she was, she was really freaked out and traumatised by it. It's not something that most, you know, most parents want for their children. So I just think we're really letting down those kids and I'm really grateful to be able to be on here to talk about it because I think it's, it's always seen as a gay issue and my frustration was always this is not a gay issue this is an issue for straight people because we are the kids of straight people I inter the book is dedicated to a young man called Mark Houghton I interviewed his mother he'd been bullied for being gay and eventually developed a drug addiction got clean of it eventually he relapsed unfortunately and had died from an unintentional overdose and it's devastated her life you know it's completely devastated her life I met another man whose son had been bullied because he'd kissed a boy on a school trip I don't even know if who's gay, you know, they might have been drunk and someone had dared him and they videoed him. He got bullied at school, came out of school, went to the top of a building, threw himself off and he was 15 years old and he died. And nine months later, the father killed himself as well. You know, this, this affects families. It's so important that it's just talked about in the mainstream. And it really isn't. The media really does not, is not able to or not willing to talk about it. And it's so frustrating. So big question then. Um, what should we be doing to like, maybe like top three things if we could sort of change the world tomorrow, yes. what should we do to, um, I suppose, erase homophobic bullying in schools, first of all? Um, 
Oh, it's such a big thing, isn't it? It's like, how could you stop, you know, murder or crime or war or whatever? I I think it will always be a problem. I think kids always bully people. I think actually difference is always a thing that that creates conflict in schools and with older people as well, actually. But I think if we could just educate people, I think if, if I really think the media has a massive part to play, just to tell the stories. And I think it is that is beginning slowly to happen, just to just to show that this is happening and that. I think just if we all had this understanding that gay people were just a part of society, you know, when I was young, um, hearing about gay people in in the tabloids, I literally thought, oh, my God, there must be about 100 of these weird perverts in London. And that's it. I didn't realize that, you know, in every street, in every family, in every job, everyone's got, you know, I think from our generation or my generation, there might be an uncle or an auntie and no one ever talked about it. He never had a wife. And it's all a bit hush hush. Well, those people were gay or trans or lesbian or whatever it was. And we're talking about that now. And I think that that's a major thing just for it to be normal, normal, normalized, I think is, is a major thing. I think another thing is, like I said, about gay culture, just talking about addiction. I think, I think us all actually just talking about addiction. Cause I, I'm recovering alcoholic. I, I haven't had a drink for about four and something years, four and a half years now. Um, and I think I would have saved myself a lot of bother if I had known what addiction was that it's not it's portrayed as i think you mentioned it you know just these kind of people just out there taking drugs because they're crazy or they're reckless when actually there's always a backstory there's always a reason you know addiction is essentially about soothing distress whether you're addicted to food whether you're addicted to sex whether it's alcohol or drugs or shopping and i think that's a key thing for me in, in the book as well that anything that makes you feel better can become addictive and lots of people lots of the you know the um doctors and in the medical profession, I don't think completely get this either. I will hear that there's a big debate that goes on about can can sex be an addiction? Can that be a problem? And I don't have any doubt that it is. And people will say, well, it's not the same as ingesting a drug that actually chemically changes changes you. But neither is gambling. And we don't have any doubt that we see people, decent family people who who get become addicted to gambling and end up like, I don't know, remortgaging their house or, you know, and then killing themselves because they're in so much debt. So I think the thing about that, it's a very similar thing to, to eating or having sex that you get this kind of thrill and this anticipation that, you know, with gambling that you might win all this money and then you you have to keep doing it. So I think if we could just understand addiction, well, that would be a huge, huge thing. Be, I mean, so much money is lost, isn't it, you know, to the NHS because of smoking or you know, people doing dangerous things or, you know, relationships that end because people, people can't stop cheating. And, and that's women as well as men. There are lots of people I, I met. Um, it's another myth that it's only men that have problems with compulsive sex. It's true for many women too. And I think that's a really, that's a really interesting thing that we need to address as well. You mentioned a lot about kind of the pressure for gay people to show like, I'm happy, everything's great. Like what you're saying about homosexuality is wrong, everything's fine. Mm. What do you think needs to change kind of within the LGBTQ culture to make it more acceptable to say I'm not feeling great, like it's not all going well? I think that is happening, actually. There's lots of different groups, like uh, 56 Dean Street, which is a big sexual health clinic in um, Dean Street in Soho in London, and they have a well-being program. I, I do a, a group there called A Change of Scene with uh, my friend who's a therapist, Simon Marks, where we just have a discussion group. So every month there's a different topic, and it might be dating, or it might be alcohol, or it might be eating, or whatever it may be. And just men, gay or bisexual men, come to the group, and they sit there, and there's a speaker, and then everyone just has a chat afterwards and, and so gives their opinion on the topic. 
topic. And it's amazing how many people will say at that that group, oh my goodness, I've been out for 30 years. I've never once sat in a in a room with a group of gay men and just talked to them as people other than, rather than being in a smoky nightclub, you know, trying to chat somebody up and, and just dancing and being drunk or high or whatever. So I think that's a really important thing. And I think Dean Street do lots of those events. I think the message of the book and talking about mental health is spreading. And so there is a recognition that we need to do, we need to get away from just bars and clubs. I think it's so complicated because I think gay culture has risen from, repression so we were forced into bars and clubs as a way of you know a safe space and of meeting each other and dating each other and now that kind of happens on apps but i think that is kind of like this old cliche of like living in the shadows i think it's really important that you know gay people and actually this is happening like big companies have you know i did a talk for barclays recently they have a big lgbt um group staff group and and they've got great policies lots of big companies have that or companies you know massive media companies all over the world are, are doing that so you know gayness and lgbt people lgbtq and all the different acronyms and things are kind of coming out of the closet to use a cliched term but you know just becoming part of mainstream society and i think that's that's really, really important. What would you say to anybody who just doesn't really understand the idea that maybe shame from society um, could trigger trauma in later life to LGBT people? It's really interesting because you know sometimes you see people on on Twitter saying straight people saying. Um, why do they have to have a gay pride? You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not gonna have a straight pride. I don't need to march down the street. And I, and I always used to, uh, lots of people just go bananas when they see that lots of gay people are very angry. It's really triggering and people, you know, attack these people who say that. And I used to be like that. And now I kind of, I do understand it. Actually, I do think we live in a world now where you turn on the TV or the news and it's just stuff about identity politics and minority groups. And my goodness, this, this celebrity said something vaguely racist or this one said something vaguely homophobic. And, and so there's a, the massive reaction that is top of our agenda. So I can understand why some people feel kind of, I don't know, alienated when there are other important issues that need to be talked about too. But I would say to straight people who, who don't understand that, I just imagine what it'd be like to be 10 years old, or even now, if you woke up tomorrow and realized you were homosexual, how would you feel about that? And I'm sure lots of people would go, well, I'd feel absolutely fine. I'd just go and find a boyfriend or do whatever I was going to do. But actually think about the idea that you'd have to be relatively self-conscious, even if you go to a restaurant with your partner, and you're sitting there, you are clearly a gay couple. I'm sure lots of people don't even think, lots of gay couples don't even think about that, but lots of us are self-conscious about it. If you're with your partner, can you hold their hand in the street? Lots of people do, but there are lots of still homophobic attacks. People are still killed. There was a guy, Ian Bainham, kicked to death in Trafalgar Square, walking along with some friends. Um, you know, if you go to a hotel, you know, go to a B&B, &B, there was famously that, that case where the Christian B&B &B owners wouldn't let the couple share a room. So you have all of these things. You, Whenever I get on a bus, I have this hypervigilance. Who is on the bus? Is there any kind of guys that might look, you know, potentially aggressive? Do I look gay today? Am I going to draw any attention to myself? And I've had a few minor issues with people over the years. Mostly it doesn't happen. But the point is actually it's still in there. For me, it's still a, a reaction I have. There are many, you know, I think um, I think there's 70 countries in the world where it's legal to be, um, to have gay sex still. I think there's, I think it's 10, it might be nine or it might be 11. It's around nine, 10 or 11 countries where it can be punishable by death. So you have to be very self-conscious about where you go, where you travel, can you be yourself? So, you know, that makes it sound very bleak. You know, most gay people, certainly in this country, have, you know, have decent lives, but there are still problems. So, 
to imagine what you've had to go through and how you've had to feel about yourself since you were 10 years old or nine years old or younger or a little bit older, it does take a toll for a lot of us. It's really, it's really hard. And I'm sure some gay people listening to this will be frustrated thinking I'm making it sound like it's terrible and poor us. And I'm not trying to do that. But it's just, I think it's important that straight people know, you know, understand that it's not as simple as it looks. It's not all just Kylie and fabulous casual sex. You know, we hear the straight men saying, oh, I wish I was gay because you can just get casual sex. It's really easy. That's great if that's what you want. And in my 20s, you know, there was periods where that, I was really happy to be doing that. Then suddenly when you realize well, it's quite hard to find more than that, even though lots of people do, but it is very hard, you know, with like the apps and gay cultures, um, very sexualized, you know, adverts for bars and clubs and all the different things. They're always se sexualized. It's all this concept of, you know, quick and free sex, which people will be saying, what's not to like? But that's complicated. It's not as simple as it seems. So um, it can be good, it can be bad, but um, it's it's more complicated than just, oh, maybe I'm attracted to a man or maybe I'm attracted to a woman. There's a whole cultural thing that, that comes with it. I think straight people should read the book. Definitely. So just a <clears throat> note, because I think you don't realise how recent, like a lot of the laws and the, because you do think. And the headlines. Yeah, you do think like, oh, it's, mostly okay now but mm. we're talking about like 20 30 years ago mm. you'll know people who have still got that and it's still impacting them well i remember even when i was at school sort of so that was in, in the 90s and gay was used as an insult so mm. oh don't be gay still now yeah, yeah. still yeah. Schools now. so that's just that's not it's almost like it that's not sort of you know shouting at a gay person you know or pushing them over in the street but that is like a kind of subtle way of basically saying to somebody you know how you are isn't right so i think it's absolutely understandable that sort of hyper vigilance um that you talk about in the book as well sort of come on and then sort of the way that you go on on the book to talk about sort of mental health issues and the way they might be triggered if you are living that sort of fairly anxious existence that i mean that seems totally natural to me that why you might develop anxiety again lots of people wouldn't i'm sure lots of people are totally fine but it does seem that if you have been badly bullied or if you sort of internalized it or if you're just kind of an, a naturally sensitive person you could go on to have issues because of these things um There's... honestly i like a lot of the stuff in your book i i kind of read it and i just sort of think like how are there so many gay people that are totally fine because yeah. there's so much yeah. that's that's gone into sort of twisting people ag against gay culture. Yeah, I mean, when I think back, I was thinking about this today, actually, that when I think back to when I was at school, I was quite lucky that I had a couple of friends, one in my year and another one in the year below me, who came out and were gay. And then they had some other friends who were gay. And over the years, we, we've all kind of come out. Um, out of all of those, most of us have had severe problems, be it alcohol addictions, eating disorders. One my friend's partner killed himself. Um, from the people I went to university with, and I have to be sensitive about, you know, just thinking about the people I'm talking about. But, you know, I saw one of my friends on Facebook saying that I, went, that I don't really know very well that I just knew at university. It was kind of basically, you know, putting out a 2 a.m. I'm, I'm going to end it all kind of message and I'm glad he didn't and people got to him and that was all fine. And another one at a university who, who I, has met severe mental health problems, I see him running around the street screaming and like, you know, peeing in his trousers and, and like hysterically performing in front of tourists. I mean, just really not in a great mental state. 
it's 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 it kind of can seem very very bleak saying that you know my best friend from school he's he's got a really lovely partner he's very happy and it's come through it but he did have to have some therapy did have to deal with some of those issues and is really good he's in a really good place now and uh, yeah and I, as i was saying to you earlier and i i'm surprised i thought more straight people would would read the book and talk about just having this discussion about you know what childhood trauma does to people because when you go when you in my experience of just being in recovery myself i'm meeting lots of different people um all the straight people i met have very similar um, stories so they might they won't have been shamed for their sexuality or for being gay but actually they might have been shamed for being a girl and i don't know sleeping with a boy when they were 14 or whatever it may be or being abused or parents not being kind to them or sometimes growing up in poverty you know, a whole range of things which can be horrendous um and they have these same problems you know low self-esteem you know uh feeling better than everyone else feeling worse than everybody else drinking too much drugging too much compulsive sex i think that's a fascinating for me, the sexual side of it is really, really fascinating. And I think maybe that's where we'll we'll go next. Because we talk about mental health all the time, but it's always in a bit like the kind of discussion about mental health out there. Quite a lot. Is, is it quite nice? It's like, if you feel depressed, call up and speak to your doctor and you can go on some tablets. It's quite messy when people are in a bad way. You know, they do crazy things, you know, drugs and alcohol, vomit over themselves, sleep with people's partners, cheat on their partners, you know, sometimes become violent. You know, there's, it, is, it gets quite messy and horrible. And I think maybe that's the next step to really acknowledge some of, some of that stuff. And these are really hard questions as well because, you know, uh, I'm, you know, relatively left-wing, but when I see these terrible stories of people who are on drugs and they, you know, beating up old women, I, you know, I'm like throw them in the prison and chuck away the key because, you know what I mean? It's compl- these are really complicated questions for all of us. So, Absolutely. Um, I mean, drugs in, in general, when you read headlines like that, you know, maybe not everyone's first thought is, you know, where did that all come from? It is just that's terrible. Mm. Um, yeah, and I totally understand. I mean, I'm, I sit there raging. You know, there's something terrible. I mean, I saw there's something in the paper today about you know a man who'd, who you know s- smashed his partner's he- woman's head against the wall and and didn't get a severe penalty. And yeah, he may have had lots of problems growing up. That's not okay though. That doesn't excuse it. And people have to be punished and getting into a whole kind of slightly crazy territory. But um, yeah, you know, these these are these are really difficult questions. And I think it's really great that well, your podcast is great and all of these discussions that are happening because it will further it and we will, you know, understand things more. And, and the great thing about that is that then you can have more people that understand all this stuff can then put in policies and vote in governments with policies that try to help get in and help kids and people when they're younger and you know address poverty and people are underprivileged and all the rest of it because we all benefit you know Mm. as a society if those things are tackled in terms of your book um if someone's read it and they have been um bullied whether it's for being gay or just being bullied in general and they're sort of struggling um what advice would you give them i think you get one life you know, I'm 44 now and I suddenly realize, oh my goodness, you know, it's gone so quickly. It doesn't feel like, it feels like it's just beginning still. And, you know, I'm going into middle age now. My God. So you get one, one chance. There's no point wasting it. You know, there's no point sitting there waiting and feeling like a victim and thinking, oh, everything's been done to me is terrible. And and terrible things may have happened to you, but it's only you that can change it. It's only you have the responsibility to change it. Otherwise it will just sit there and you can be bitter and blame everybody else. But until you pick up the phone or you go to a support group, or you, you you do something yourself is the only way. There's a quote in the in the book which I think is from a recovery quote, which is um, only you can do this, but you cannot do it alone. And I find that really moving because actually 
going into recovery for all these issues is about connecting to other people, asking for help, admitting that you are vulnerable, which is a difficult thing in our culture because we're all meant to be so tough and strong. Um, and just, yeah, and then allowing people to to help you. And I think that's that's a really important thing. So one of the things that I found really interesting reading this book was just how recent like the intense homophobia was like I kind of knew growing up that there was a lot of homophobia still lingering even in my parents at school mm. um but the laws against you know having sex with another man I didn't realize that was only like in the 70s that that was still a thing in Ireland it's the 90s yeah like that's shocking that's why i do say that every straight person should read this book because it is recent and i'm sure everyone can think of you know things in their childhood where there are those kind of smaller instant incidences of homophobia yeah like i remember from when i was younger and i said i was going to go to an all-girls school there was a lot of like oh well you'll become a lesbian and like that was treated as the worst imaginable thing Mm. um and that does have an effect because i don't think any girls from my school in my year came out and I think a big part of that was because they knew they would be heavily criticized for that Mm. maybe not bullying but definitely shamed and ostracized Mm. yeah in my school as well it was that classic thing of you know the word gay was used as an insult almost a funny insult for anything you didn't like so you know oh that's a gay bag or oh that's a gay haircut or something and the people that are saying it weren't necessarily thinking i'm you know being homophobic but they were indirectly being homophobic Mm -hmm. and then also um i just remember sort of um i had a friend who was gay and the the kind of slurs that other kids were sort of saying to him again this was in the 90s so you weren't having at my school at least you didn't have kids sort of beating him up or being directly sort of abusive to him but you did have people sort of like doing kind of plays on word with his name sort of putting into you know slurs basically yeah um which sort of thinking about that now is very unpleasant um but also i think it's yeah so it's important to, to think about how recent these things are but it also i think it's very important to try and think about actually what's still going on now because yeah. it's not just a matter that that um this is something that's been and gone i think that's really that's really a risk there's a risk of of lots of us sort of thinking oh well you know in the past we were homophobic but aren't we enlightened now isn't everything fantastic i mean things are better which is good but things aren't fantastic you know clearly you still have children um killing themselves because they've come out as gay that's happened very recently um you still have bullying you still have people kind of scared to go to certain places or just generally be in sort of certain communities and be openly gay um there's still places you can't go on holiday Mm -hmm. and just to hold your husband's hands so i think we need to just think about what's happening now and it's difficult actually isn't it when you're right in the middle of it but if you're in say an office and there's sort of a comment rather than just sort of ignoring it actually taking it apart and and sort of thinking about it or maybe going to HR if there's something going on or if you're in a school situation if you do hear something or you think you know that's not right actually sort of thinking to yourself look this is something that should be addressed it's really difficult one I think because there's definitely this this idea that oh you know it was it was bad in the past but I think it's fine now but mm. I really don't think it is fine now especially I think now 
one of the biggest areas that I can still see a lot of just awful stuff happening is um, transphobia yeah. like by the media, by people in general. It's still kind of seen as acceptable to say awful things about trans people Absolutely. and hold like astonishingly harmful ideas um, from like, well, I don't want to share a bathroom to just just awful stuff if you look into it. Mm. And I think it's important to yeah be mindful that that's still happening and also speak up when you see it happening because mm. as much as we can say like oh years ago we were really homophobic and that was awful are you doing anything to stop that same situation with transphobia If you've been affected by any of the issues we've discussed today, please give the Samaritans Ring on 116-123 or go to the website at samaritans.org. For LGBTQ-specific issues, you can also give the Switchboard a ring, which is 0300-330-0630. Thanks very much to our guest, Matthew Todd. Thanks also to our producer, Sam Bonham, and to Lucy Baker for the jingles. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please give it a rate and a review. Um, you can also come and chat to us online. We've got a Facebook group just called Mentally Yours. Also, we're on Twitter at MentallyYRS. See you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.